You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today. It is the 5th of February. And on the program today, we asked why people are being put off having babies. That's as population rates decline worldwide. We spoke to global expert Anna Rotka from Finland's Population Research Institute to get her insight. And we wanted to get the local angle as well. So we spoke to Wifag Adnan, who's Assistant Professor of Labour Economics at New York University, Abu Dhabi. Meanwhile, we continued our conversation about ageism. We started it last week, but so many people got in touch that we wanted to investigate the law here in the UAE when it comes to age discrimination. Luke Tapp, who's a partner for Pinsent Masons, he leads the firm's Middle East employment practice, joined us to give us the lowdown. Plus, we also marked World Cancer Day, looking at the gap in access to treatment and what can be done about it here in the UAE. For that one, we were joined by oncologist Dr. Deborah Mukherjee from the Clemenceau Medical Centre in Dubai. And throughout the show, the Grammys ceremony was going on over in Hollywood. Producer Jennifer Crichton had one eye on our programme and one eye on the television screens and brought us up to date with all the winners and losers. Talking about winners and losers, Chris McCarty also sent through an extensive, a lengthy report on all the latest sports news from the weekend. We are taking a look at the problems of population growth on the programme today. It's basically emerged that the number of babies being born pretty much everywhere in the world is falling. So, in fact, fertility is absolutely declining over all different types of societies. So whether it's conservative, whether it's liberal, whether you live in a big country, whether you live in a small country, and also in economically developing countries and also developed countries. In the US, for example, birth rate is 1.6%. In China, it's 1.28. That means, you know, I mean, obviously, you only don't have like one and a half babies, but you you get my gist. Um, And in Europe, the average is 1.53. Now, even in India, you know, a country normally celebrated for the number of children being born. You know, there's lots of talk of it being the most populous country at the moment. Even there, they have fewer births per women than the theoretical replacement rate of 2.1. In the UAE, it is 1.46 and consistently falling. Now, tech billionaire Elon Musk is particularly worried about it. As countries get, get wealthier, their birth rates plummet. It's, it's somewhat counterintuitive because people will say like, well, it's too expensive to have a baby. Nope. The, the wealthier you are, are, the fewer kids you have. The more educated you are, the fewer kids you have. So it's the inverse. This, by the way, is, I think, the biggest single threat to civilization. We can't have civilization just dwindle into nothing like we don't want civilization to end in adult diapers with a whimper that would suck. <laughs> so he's not the only one who considers it a global threat researchers around the world are trying to work out why it is that some young people don't seem to want to have uh, don't seem to want to have many children and some 
don't want to have children at all. Joining me now to discuss the conundrum is the sociologist and demographer Anna Rotka, who works as research director at the Family Federation of Finland's Population Research Institute. Thank you so much for joining me early in the morning, Anna. Lovely to have you with us. <laughs> Hello. Good morning. Good morning to you. Now, what is the situation in Finland when it comes to population? Because I always think of Finland as quite uh, as, as having a decent welfare state, as being quite supportive of women. I would imagine you had lots of babies being born. Yes, one would, at, and that is the enigma. As you know, we are often called the happiest country on earth. We score really, really well in maternal health, child health, family well-being, uh, and those who do have children in Finland are really happy. But our birth rates have been plummeting for the last twelve um, years now, and we are among the world's world's most uh, aged countries. So we are now second after Japan, together with Italy. Is the government trying to reverse this sort of trend? I, I mean, I imagine you've been put on the case to try and work out why it is that people aren't having babies. <laughs> well, the question is what to do. Uh, I also think there's an um, uneasiness, especially among the more liberal and, and green parties, how really to approach this issue. Because obviously in Finland, our framework is human rights, reproductive rights, also the right to choose not to have children, if that is your um, preferred lifestyle. So the question runs deeper. It's like we did almost everything we could regarding family policies. They are There's place for improvement, but they are basically great. Uh, but how do we create a new kind of family formation policies for the 21st century? Uh, because most of the decline we are currently seeing, this very steep decline of, of 30% of births, most of it is due to people not having their first child or having the first child later. So that's why the threshold to family formation is kind of the keystone for us. And I also think that's the case in, in, in many, if not most, other developed countries. So the reality is, is that if people don't want to have children, in some ways, in a liberal society, I suppose the argument would be is, who are you to try to make them have more? No, I think it's, uh, I mean, what's the point of having uh, any society if we don't want to reproduce life? Um As, as I said in this Financial Times article, and it has been really much quoted, we should we should not uh, have babies because of the economy, but it should be the reverse. The economy is there for people to have babies, and most people do want to have babies. So how can we help them to have them while there is still time? And how can we have an, a view of uh, the desirable life course, uh, which is kind of fun and you can do many things and you can work and, and uh, fulfill yourself, but you can also become a parent in time, which basically means uh, by the latest in your 30s and preferably a bit earlier. So I suppose, I mean, I, I'm not a researcher in, in this field, obviously, but one of the obvious reasons <laughs> that I can guess why um, people aren't having many babies is because it used to be that women didn't go out to work, didn't have careers, didn't, you know, build a lifestyle away from the family. And now, of course, we all have the opportunity to do that. And the idea of stopping that to have children is pretty unattractive. But but there's sort of no other way of doing it. 
But there is. That's the thing. <laughs> my 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 own mother's generation, in a, in a way, my own generation proved in the Nordic countries that it's it's possible. Uh, and unlike what what Elon Musk there said, actually in the Nordics, uh, the more educated people, um, both men and women, have more children. Um, so that's still the case, although birth rates have plummeted. But there was a time in the Nordics when, in a way, we had it all. Women worked, and 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 many women had also the highly educated had had most children and then something changed and changed drastically and i think it has to do with the culture um and and all the other big crises and technological transformations uh, of the last decade do you think that the pandemic played a part do you think fears about global warming is playing a part do you think some people don't want to bring children into the world because they're unsure about the the direction of the world do you think it gets as esoteric as that well we have been studying this quite much uh and it seems that um fears of crisis do play a role for some but it's very seldom the only reason and it ties into other insecurities um Am I ready to have a child? Is my health and mental health enough? Is is my partnership relation good enough? Are we committed? I, I think this commitment issue, which is a big thing for young adults within relationships, plays a big role. Um, so, um, yes, I think that's part of the changing la- landscape. But I also think it's part of the kind of, as I said, the idealized lifestyle. What What is a successful life? Uh, and how do we talk about that? And there I really think the value of kind of showing the value of raising children, not only your own children, um, is kind of something something we miss. The, the Swedish feminists currently have a really great phrase where they say that, that the puzzle of reproduction is still needs, uh, needs to find its place in the big puzzle we are making. Are you seeing a difference between the genders? Are men more likely to want children than women or or is there no difference um there are not big differences in in finland and, and other high income uh, societies uh, what we do see is that men <laughs> tend to have even more optimistic views about when a woman can get pregnant uh, compared to women so actually they don't they don't know that a woman's um on average i mean the the chances to get pregnant really start declining after 35 years on average. Uh, there's a difference, but in these kind of ideals and aspirations, we don't see big differences. Um, but again, the question is how to get from the ideals to the plans and then from the plans to actually succeed. And young adults often overestimate how how easy this goes. They're actually big steps. Most, of, most Europeans who intend to have children within three years um, succeed but a big minority do not why do we need to worry about this because one might argue you know that less people equals sort of less of a drain on natural resources you know we're facing a you know a a tightening uh, on you know an increase in sustainability sort of focused policies you know if you don't have as many people then you're not going to need as many acres to grow food on them that's that's a very good question. Um, this is all very contextual, isn't it? So in Finland now, I mean, schools are closing. Uh, and in many Eastern European countries, you have whole villages who are just dying out. 
And from that point of sense, if you say, oh, yes, there are still, you know, fertility is quite high in sub-Saharan Africa. It is, but this is already changing our societies quite irreversibly. Uh, so that's that's one point. Um, the other is that I think we all agree that the fact that humans will become fewer um, within this century is a good thing. So population decline is a good thing. And for that, we do need below replacement fertility. But I don't think we have discussed enough that uh, if humanity stabilizes at around 1.9 or 1.8, it's still population decline, but it's kind of a reasonably high fertility. If we keep going down to these numbers we see now, uh, as you said, 1.4, where you are, 1.3 and below in Finland, that's um, that's a very big um, social uh, and economic change. And it is not what people say they would wish to have for themselves. So we also have the unwanted childlessness. So in that sense, I think we can have population uh, decline, but we need to do this also sustainably and manage it. And and uh, very low fertility is, is certainly not conducive to that. Anna Rotka, thank you very much indeed. Such a fascinating interview. So much food for thought there for us. Really, really interesting stuff. Uh, Anna's Research Director at the Family Federation of Finland's Population Research Institute. Thank you very much indeed uh, for your time this morning. I know it was quite a bit earlier in Finland. So thank you for doing the interview with us. We really appreciate it. Hello there. Welcome back to the agenda. We're talking about uh, population on the program today, um, specifically the problems of population growth uh, or the lack of population growth, as it emerges that the number of babies being born is falling almost everywhere. In fact, fertility is declining in all sorts of societies. You know, it's easy to think that it just falls in developed economies, but actually uh, it is falling everywhere, including here in the UAE, where the birth rate is now 1.46. Now, one theory is that family-friendly policies, things like financial support, you know, extensive maternity and paternity leave, just aren't enough to encourage young people to have babies. Let's have a look um, at the local situation. If you were listening a few minutes ago, you'd have heard the international vibe. But let's make it local because I'd like to know what's going on here in the UAE and the wider region. And joining me now to discuss that is Wifag Adnan, who is Assistant Professor of Labour Economics at New York University, Abu Dhabi. Um, Professor Adnan, thank you so much for joining us on the line. Can we have a look at that figure of 1.46 a little bit more? So that's the the current birth rate in the UAE, has it declined recently? Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, so, I mean, yes, the declining fertility rate is definitely a problem. Um, and yes, it has it has been declining uh, in the past few decades. And I, I would say that uh, in general, whether it's here locally or, or generally speaking, um, I would say that growing employment opportunities, especially for highly educated people and women, um, make it so that the opportunity cost of having a child is really high. So, you know, when, when we say opportunity cost, we mean like what you could be doing rather than this particular choice. So rather than have a child, you could be venturing into all kinds of uh, employment opportunities. And now that labor markets are increasingly sophisticated and there are so many things for especially educated people to do um, it 
it really makes having children uh, difficult, especially again for highly educated women. And also given that gender roles are actually quite persistent. I mean, we see that all over the world, gender roles are pretty severe. I mean, yes, men help out more than they used to, but uh, it is still understood by almost everyone that, you know, if you have a child, the more of the burden will be on women. Um, and so, yeah, different societies have taken that uh, indifferently, but, you know, I think this is a, a major con- contributor. I have to say, also, I can remember yeah. the exact moment in my son's very early life. I can remember the exact moment when I realized that ultimately responsibility for my son fell to me, not my husband. It was a really weird thing because right up until that moment, right all through my pregnancy, all through everything else, all through the fact that I was going to get really nicely well-paid maternity leave, it wasn't... It wasn't until there was this this really crystalline moment where he had to go and do something or, well, chose to go and do something. And I suddenly realised that he was always going to be able to walk away and that I was never going to be able to walk away. And and it really annoyed me, to be honest, because until that moment, I'd felt total equality with my partners and with men in the world. And I hadn't hadn't felt any sort of deprivation or any um, ism against me, any sexism against me. I'd always sort of forged a path. And I think that a lot of women in the Western world get to do that. And I I think it was a real shock to me. And and I don't think that's gone away yet. Think you're quite right. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So I I think that gender roles are persistent for a number of reasons, and uh, some of you know uh, that that's a whole other conversation. But I think some of those reasons are not just um, due to men, but also due to some women, due to some uh, religious understandings of how the world should be, so forth and so on. That again is a very long-winded discussion potentially. Um, but I. Again, I do think the opportunity cost of, of having children today is 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 really high. And on the one hand, it's high for people who have a lot of potential employment opportunities, but it's also high for um, those who are concerned about higher prices, growing inequality, and an increasing precariousness about how the world works. So I would say, again, globalization, technological change, trade, outsourcing, um, automation, AI, all of these things, uh, uh, even climate change, all of these things contribute to this growing precariousness about, well, what kind of world am I bringing my child into? And and, and you and Anna discussed that a little bit. Um, And so that, I think, makes, makes makes it more and more difficult to convince young people that having a, a, a child is, um, is, is, is good for them, for good for their future, good for their well-being. I like how Anna talked about um, that the economy is here for you and that, you know, having, a, you know, having children is not just something that we want because, oh, we need you guys to help pay the pensions, right? But we also need you to, you know, we think that this will increase your well-being. I completely agree with that. But I do have to say also the very last thing is that, uh, especially locally, um, I would say there are a few things that have especially contributed to this. So um, one, uh, this increasing uh, increasing employment opportunities for women have meant that both men and women um, have less time for children, but also extended family members, neighbors, communities, 
just the community in general, their own communities. And this leads to this breakdown of social and family ties. Um, and then the vetting for marriages, marriage matches, and the vetting for, uh, you know, helping to raise a child and the community that allows us to, 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 to raise this child is weaker than it was before, adding again to the precariousness of raising a child. I think a lot of people are nervous about doing it all on their own. Um, and today in a, an increasingly individualistic society, I do think that that's playing a role. I mean, absolutely fascinating topic. Uh, Wifag, Adnan, I could talk to you for another another day, basically, and I'm no doubt we'll return to this subject many times. But thank you very much for your time on the programme this morning. That's Wifag Adnan, the Assistant Professor of Labour Economics at New York University, Abu Dhabi. We are marking World Cancer Day on the programme uh, today. Uh, if you were eagle-eyed, you might notice that actually it was yesterday, but we're not on air on Sunday. So we've decided to uh, look at the gap in access to treatment today. Um, do you know, it's really interesting. There, is, there are very many inequalities in cancer care around the globe. I mean, the obvious one is what you'd expect, you know, a high income versus low income settings. But some of them are really a lot less clear and really sort of intriguing um, and really unexpected in the case of this one, because... 70% of those who die from cancer are 65 or over. Now, there's a statistic that you'd sort of expect. But apparently, older populations face disproportionate barriers to effective and personalised treatment. Now, that would absolutely astonish me because you would expect that, I don't know, that government, that the medical services, uh, that medical professionals would be you know, targeting the group of people who are most likely to suffer from cancer. But for whatever reason it is, that doesn't seem to be happening. Joining me now to talk through how we can overcome some of these inequalities is Dr. Deborah Mukherjee, who's a medical oncologist at the Clemenceau Medical Centre here in Dubai. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Mukherjee, on the line this morning. Tell me, what are your, I suppose, what are your sort of major priorities when it comes to reducing inequality of care, specifically here in the UAE? Are there particular areas of concern for you? Well, thank you very much for having me uh, this morning on the show on the uh, day after World Cancer Day to talk about cancer inequalities. And you've made a very important point that the majority of the cancers we see are in older individuals. But here in the UAE, of course, we have a younger population and we are seeing cancers in younger people. And you mentioned the inequalities and closing the gap, particularly in our older populations. And the main thing that we need to do, particularly here in the UAE, is empower people to access screening. Because by screening for cancers, that means we can catch them at an earlier and a more curative stage. And this is when we can improve all of the outcomes for cancer treatment. So we've made really great advances. We are curing more cancers than ever before. But if we catch them early, it means we have much higher chance of curing cancers. Do you think that there is a particular gender or a particular demographic of people who are unwilling to come forward for checks? That's a really good question. And of course, we have to acknowledge that people who have lower uh, income or resources have to be very careful about um, their healthcare coverage 
And we hope to see rollouts of more national screening programs that can cover all of our patients for their cancer screening. But then you mentioned gender, which is really important. And we actually have more cancers diagnosed in men in the world, but there is definite gender gaps when we come to cancer screening and access to care globally. And of the cancers that happen in younger people, um, that's below the age of 65, two thirds of these are in women. So globally, we also need to empower our women to be able to access appropriate screening so that we can catch cancers at younger ages and cure more cancers when we are diagnosing them early or even preventing them through some of our preventative treatments. Do you think there are still cultural barriers to be overcome? Do you think some people are maybe shy to come forward because they might be worried if they're a woman that there might be a male doctor, for example, those types of um, sort of cultural issues to overcome? They do exist. We are, um, as a medical community, we are improving all of these barriers. But absolutely, there's always an option for women to be seen by a female doctor if this is what they prefer. There is always an option to be accompanied by female members of staff. So we'd like to get the word out there that there should be no barriers for women to come forward. Uh, Women here in the UAE are very empowered. Uh, They are in control of their own health. And we'd like to just make everyone aware that having an annual checkup with their doctor uh, to talk about screening for common cancers such as breast cancer um, and cervix cancer is something that all women should do for their health in the future. And that's maintaining the health of themselves and their families as well. So we would like to reduce some of these fears uh, and help to reduce some of these gender issues which can lead to lack of screening uptake. Do the campaigns work? Because I know we do, there's the pink caravan every year, you know, that we have, uh, I think it's February, isn't it? That's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Um, do they, so, do they bring, is it February? Do they bring people forward? October, pink October. October um, that's I'm sure do you, you know, remember. I had a mammogram Absolutely. afterwards. Yeah. Hilariously, I actually, it worked on me. So I, so I know, yes, yes campaigns worked on me. There we go. Absolutely. And there's lots of evidence that particularly here in the, in the Arab world that we have really made a lot of um, improvements in bringing down uh, the proportion of women that we see being diagnosed with breast cancer at a later stage. And all these taboos are being broken. Women are more open, talking about uh, Pink October, talking about screening and breast cancer awareness. And that really is so important. So yes, they work. Yes, we want everyone listening to be uh, cancer prevention and awareness ambassadors and to really encourage their themselves and their loved ones and their friends uh, to participate in recommended cancer screening, because this is how we can, as I said, cure more cancers, prevent more cancers and have a healthier community. Dr. Deborah Mukherjee, medical oncologist at the Clemenceau Medical Centre in Dubai. Thank you so much for your time. And I'm going to do my bit on the radio now of being an ambassador. I went for the mammogram. I cannot recommend them more. They don't hurt. They, they're over and done with in literally a matter of minutes. All female staff. I had it done up in the north of Dubai, lovely hospital. Very quick. And you get your results pretty much immediately. They tell you straight away. So I couldn't recommend it more. I wish I'd gone many years ago because I think you are supposed to consider to start screening from the age of about 40, give or take. Um, so, yeah, especially if you find any sort of differences. Um, and you are meant to check your breasts yourself. I'm, I'm still not very good at that, but um, fantastic that everyone uh, goes to get a mammogram if they can.
Hey there, welcome back to the agenda. Now, we're going to discuss ageism for the next uh, half hour or so. Um, and if you were listening on Friday, you might be thinking, hang on a second, didn't they do that on Friday? Well, we did, but it was so interesting and sparked so much interest in people messaging and getting in touch that we decided to sort of take a bit of a longer look at it. Um, Now, if you missed it, we spoke to Tamsin, who struggled to find a job in her 50s. This is Tamsin. I have 30 years of experience. I live here. Obviously, I'm tied here. And I just could not find a job. And it didn't matter. I had upgraded my skills, gone on a digital marketing course. I started doing um, LinkedIn profiles and CVs for my friends who were also looking, Emirati and non-Emirati. I was doing everything I could to channel myself to find a job and it wasn't happening. Now, recruitment expert David McKenzie, he was also in the studio on Friday and he said that sadly, Tamsin's case is typical. The Discrimination Act covers everything from nationality, religion, etc. It doesn't cover age. Honestly, there are clients who say to me, you know, I don't want somebody over 50. I'm like, well, you need to look at people as people rather than how old they are or where they're from or what nationality they are. And with older people, you get maturity, you get experience. It's this second generation of career people now. And we had so many people get in touch that we decided to get a little bit more of a sense of the laws on ageism. Obviously, you've just heard David McKenzie. His views uh, are that there isn't a law in it. But we wanted to sort of speak to a lawyer as well, just to double check. So I'm delighted to welcome employment lawyer Luke Tapp onto the show. He is a partner at Pinsent Masons here in Dubai. Luke, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Uh, interestingly not working, but I'll get the team to come and have a look at it. But it's okay because in the meantime, we are actually going to speak to uh, somebody who has had experience of this themselves. This is Arhad, who got in touch with us on Friday, and I have just got back in touch with her. Arhad, hello there. Thank you very much for joining us on the line. Tell me your story. Hi, Georgia. Hello. Uh, Well, it's been about eight years that I'm desperately looking for a job. Uh, I'm applying to any possible job that matches my skills. And just like other stories, uh, you know, I've been upskilling, reskilling, keeping uh, up to date with all the latest uh, trends and uh, skills that are required for jobs. And it's just been eight years since the age of 44. I'm now 51. Impossible to find a job. And have you been consistently looking and do you have any sort of hint as to why it might be that you haven't been able to find a role? I have no idea. I mean, I'm told quite a lot of time that my CV, I mean, I have like 25 years experience uh, behind me uh, in the corporate world, in small and medium businesses, uh, but mm, I'm not sure. I don't know if it's uh, career breaks as well, being a mother. You never know, uh, do you? Sure. That's, yeah, the, yeah, that's yeah. the problem. How is it? I mean, it must be very disheartening. How is it making you feel? Um, I'm very resilient. So I just Good continue. <laughs> just continue searching. And, and, and same thing. I'm thinking, you know, mature, there must be companies out there that are looking for maturity for a broad prospect of uh, skills as well. Mm. Uh, So I just continue. I have more energy than I had in my 30s and 40s, to be honest with you. Um, So I'll just keep going. 
Oh, good for you, Aha. Thank you so much for joining us on the line to tell your story. I really appreciate your time. And I think you're actually speaking for an awful lot of people because, I mean, I, I couldn't get over how many people got in touch with us. I'm going to bring out Luke Tapp from Pinsent Masons in now. Luke, let's see if the line is working now. How are you doing? Hi, Georgia. Good morning. Yes, I'm well, thank you. How are you? Very well indeed. Thank you so much for joining us on the line. Now, I mean, we've just heard Arhad's story. But there's no sort of guarantee that the reason why she's not managing to get jobs is because, it's because of her age, but she does suspect that's the case. Is that typical of stories that you've heard in your practice? Yeah, thanks, Georgia. I heard Arhad's story and... and um, it is it, it, it is a shame to hear stories like that, you know, where we have really talented people in the market and they feel they're not getting the opportunities because of their age. I mean, what, what we see in the market um, is a much more kind of inclusive spirit, certainly from the UAE authorities in relation to the laws and the regulations that they're developing when it comes to diversity and inclusion within the private sector workforce. Uh, you know, we've seen policies such as emeritization, there was the introduction of a diversification uh, regulation uh, very recently uh, to encourage diversity of recruitment uh, within the private sector. But I do think age is one of those areas where there is some protection and we can get into the detail around where that protection is um, in some of the applicable laws uh, within the UAE. But but you're quite right that that in, in, in some circumstances, uh, such as within the UAE labour law or the anti-discrimination law that you referred to earlier, age does not have the same protective status that other, other characteristics, such as gender, religion, nationality, do benefit from uh, under that law. It's, I mean, it's great that we've, we've got those ad- additional protections. Um, as you can imagine, I'm particularly keen on the gender one. Um, but, and, and I know that they've been introduced, you know, fairly recently or, or, or those have been advanced fairly recently with the new labour law that came into force. Um, and I wonder whether it, this, this sort of lack of focus on ageism is sort of typical globally, whether it's not just a thing for the UAE, but it's something that we see around the world. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Georgia. And and there's definitely different approaches in relation to the protection of age as a characteristic around the world. So if you look at um, jurisdictions, countries such as the UK, uh, Central Europe, uh, there is specific protection against discrimination on the grounds of age. But a really important point to mention when it comes to the UAE is that there are laws within the UAE that do protect against age discrimination as well. So in, in two of the free zones within the UAE, the DIFC, Dubai International Financial Centre Free Zone, and ADGM, Abu Dhabi Global Markets Free Zone. They have their own independent employment laws. And within those laws, there is specific protection for employees on the grounds of discrimination on the basis of age. So there is protection from age discrimination within the DIFC and ADGM employment laws. And as we, but as, but, but as we've mentioned, and you've mentioned there, Georgia, you know, the UAE labour law in itself, that protects on the grounds of gender, it does, and other characteristics, it doesn't protect on the grounds of age. So even within the UAE, there are, there are pockets of, of law and um, areas where age is protected on the grounds of discrimination. It's, I mean, it's such a fascinating sector. And obviously, the older I get, the more interesting I find it. We've got lots of messages already coming through on this. Luke, if it's OK, we're going to keep you with us just in case anyone has any questions that they'd like to 
ask of you. I hope that's okay. Um, messages coming in now. Um, this person says, Finn says, I used to work for an American bank for 21 years and they boasted all the time about full inclusion, etc. But ultimately, most people reaching 50 years old were actually made redundant. Uh, another message here from Arno says, I'm turning 45. I've been applying for so many jobs and I rarely even get an acknowledgement. Um, he's lived here for 10 years now and we all know that the UAE is an amazing place. And unfortunately, that means that lots of people want to come here and then going on, therefore, on the basics of demand and supply, it's therefore logical that for the number of job openings, you know, wages can be kept to a minimum. There, Therefore, they attract the best brains for as cheap as possible. And the kind of people that can accept these jobs cannot be 45 with two kids and a mortgage paying 7% interest. And this is something that just needs to be accepted. The exciting thing, though, is at 45, you can use your experience and maturity to serve people better. So I believe opening a business is the next logical step. Really interesting words there from Arno. Uh, loads more coming through. Uh, this one is anonymous. I'm turning 50 years old. I'm a woman with an MBA and MSc and I cannot find job opportunities. It's been three years now in the UAE and before in my home country. I don't see any other option than finding a partner and launching my own business. It's a pity that I have to start from the basics, having 25 years of experience and a high level of education. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to The Agenda. Discussing ageism on the programme today. So many people getting in touch saying that they are experiencing ageism. Even people like Gary, who got in touch saying he started to experience it in his sector in his early 40s. So previously I was assisting with recruiting of staff in the sports industry. Some of our criteria were the candidate needs to be under the age of 30 and single. The reason for this was lower salaries, um, as well as the, the candidate being able to be a bit more flexible on weekends to work at sporting events. Now I'm currently 41 and I'm actually looking for a new job myself. And a couple of the interviews I've been to, specifically in the sports industry, I can see that as soon as I'm starting to mention my age, it's becoming like I'm too old for the position or, as I've been told before, I'm too experienced for that position. So yeah, I do find ageism in the workplace is real. I never thought it was, but I'm definitely experiencing that. We've got Luke Tapp, employment lawyer for Pinson Masons, one of the partners there, joining us on the line now. Luke, is that type of thing illegal in the UAE? Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Georgia. I, I think the important thing to mention in relation to inclusion and, equ and equality within the UAE is that it's a journey. And I think that example that I think it was Gary shared there, you, you know, if we look back five or 10 years ago, we were hearing people saying those sorts of things in relation to gender or in relation to nationality, whereas that's that's less of a theme because of the legislation that's been introduced. So, I mean, in response to your question, Georgia, in some areas of the UAE, um, depending on where the company's incorporated, um, there is no prohibition against discriminating on the grounds of age, although there is an underlying uh, public policy of inclusion and, and equality. So you couldn't point to a particular piece of, of the legislation of the UAE labour law and say, well, well, that person saying that to Gary has breached that provision because age is not referred to in the labour law. But you could say that 
ultimately it's it, it it does go against the public policy of inclusion within the workplace and it is something that i think employees certainly once you're employed by an organization you have the right to sort of challenge and query whether whether that is in keeping with the policies of the organization and the policies of the UAE UAE government as a whole do you think that there is a move towards prohibiting ageism, not just here in the UAE, but but more globally? Do you think that it's becoming the sort of, you know, at the moment it feels like it's the last ism that's sort of allowed in the workplace. Do you think that, that that's soon to go as well? Um, I, I think so, George. I think there's definitely a move to, to that more inclus- inclusivity within the workplace across the generations. I agree with you that it's one of the last protected characteristics um, that, that should be addressed within the UAE private sector. As I mentioned, there are pockets of protection on the grounds of age within the DIFC and the ADGM free zones already within the UAE. So there is certainly a move towards that within the UAE in certain areas. Uh, but but I, I do think that's the case. And I think with the introduction of things like the golden visa, where, you know, whatever age you are, Gary, you in your 40s, uh, you can still get a golden visa that gives you guaranteed residence for the next 10 years within the UAE. That is that is designed to support, you know, to support everybody ultimately, but, but certainly to support um, individuals who are unable to get visa sponsorship through their organisations, perhaps because of their age. Really interesting, as always, to have you join us on the radio. Thank you for your expertise. Uh, you've been listening to the voice there of Luke Tapp. He's a partner at Pinson Masons, where he specialises in employment. And I have to say the messages are coming thick and fast. This person has uh, got in touch. Um, they say they want to remain anonymous, but they were talking about uh, ageism in the oil and gas sector. Have a listen to this. I've worked with quite a few older people. So the company I'm working for now is the opposite of ageist, honestly. And we have lots of guys over the age of 70 actually working for us and the company really values their experience. But um, I do know I have worked with a few guys telling me they were dreading their 60th birthday because they knew that they'd be welcomed with a letter on their desk with their severance package and uh, you know a letter saying thanks for all your efforts. Um, but it is now time for you to retire. You know, what one of the guys I know has actually just left the country because of, because exactly for this reason. So many messages coming in. Uh, Harshal says, I've been made redundant since the 31st of December. I have appeared for a couple of interviews or possible opportunities. But what I observed is that if I uh, need a job, that the package is sort of give it or, you know, take it or leave it. It's usually very low. But if they need skills like mine and the employer approaches me, then I'm more likely to be able to negotiate the salary. Um, And this is despite having worked for a global conglomerate worth over 11 billion euros. You'd expect someone like me with 39 years in the food and beverage industry to be treated like a commodity. That's from Harshal. Uh, This person's chosen to remain anonymous, saying, I do understand from an employer's perspective that they prefer to have have people who are younger because of the cost of medical insurance of older employees. Having said that, we have three members of staff in their 50s. They're extremely valuable members of staff and we have a zero policy for discriminating against age. We're also recruiting for business development managers. So if anyone's interested, get in touch with us at Liquid of Life. There you go. You see, you get in touch. Occasionally you manage to get a free advert on the radio. Um, So really interesting to hear everyone getting in touch. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station.
Welcome back to The Agenda. Yeah, we are turning our attention now to the latest star-studded ceremony of the entertainment awards season. Yeah, last night it was the turn of the 2024 Grammy Awards. It sort of, because of the timings, works out as our morning and producer Jennifer Crichton has been keeping across all of the action joins me now in the studio. Jen, it's been a big night, hasn't it? It has, and a big night in particular for Pop's biggest female stars. They've been cleaning up. Let's start with the big one. Taylor Swift made history again as the first artist ever to win Album of the Year four times for Midnight. Now, to highlight just how big an achievement that was, she'd previously been tied on three wins with three artists. Those are Stevie Wonder... Paul Simon and Frank Sinatra. So safe to say it's not happened often. Yeah, I mean, those are literally some of the most famous people in the world, or were. Yes, indeed. So four album wins for her. Not only that, her win was her 13th Grammy, which she revealed was her lucky number. And she celebrated the achievement with announcement that um, it's got people in a bit of a lather. I know that the way that the Recording Academy voted is a direct reflection of the passion of the fans. So I want to say thank you to the fans by telling you a secret that I've been keeping from you for the last two years, which is that my brand new album comes out April 19th. It's called called The Tortured Poets Department. I'm going to go and post the cover right now backstage. Thank you. I love you. Thank you. So safe to say that's caused a bit of excitement among the very large contingent of Swifties this morning. Two years. It makes you realise how long it takes to plan one of these things. You know, to write it, to record it and then have it ready to come out. I mean, two years is ages that she's known it as a secret. But also, what two years? Because has she not been on basically the biggest music tour ever. Yeah. I mean, when, how I, I, it dazzles, doesn't it, how she manages to find time for everything. Quite astonishing. Really quite astonishing. And as I said, it was a night dominated by women, not just Taylor Swift. We saw a lot of R&B and, and rap stars actually coming to the fore. Women, S.E.D.A. and Victoria Monet picking up multiple awards, along with my personal favourites, the all-female supergroup Boy Genius, who got three. Billie Eilish was named winner of Song of the Year for What Was I Made For, which appeared on the Barbie movie soundtrack, which also won. And it was on a bit of a star-studied shot list. She seemed, I'd say, genuinely shocked to have beaten off competition from Taylor Swift, Miley Cyrus, Olivia Rodrigo, Dua Lipa, John Batiste and SZA. Yikes. Oh, my goodness. Damn, that's stupid, guys. Whoa. Literally, like, I was looking at everybody's faces and I leaned over and I was like, not a chance. Yo, I just want to say, everybody in this category, like... That was a crazy list of incredible people, incredible artists, incredible music. I I feel crazy right now. And Miley Cyrus also gave a slightly unexpected speech and got a lot of love in the room, I have to say, after she picked up her first and then her second Grammy, winning pop solo performance and record of the year for Flowers. So there was a little boy that all he wanted for his birthday was a butterfly. And so his parents gave him a butterfly net and he was so excited he just went outside out in the sun and started swinging and swinging but with no luck he 
sat down on the ground. He, he finally let go and he surrendered and he was okay that he wasn't going to capture this beautiful butterfly. And right when he did is when the butterfly came and landed right on the tip of his nose. And this song, Flowers, is my butterfly. Thank you. Now that moment's already going viral, in part because of you hear the voice in the background doing the sort of the sound effects. That was Mariah Carey. Ah, so it was awesome. the two MCs on the stage at the same time. Big fan of Mariah Carey. Indeed. And I'm not going to get into the fashion too much, but I think special props to Miley, who seems to have taken her inspiration from Jane Fonda. There's a lot of backcombing, a lot of sequins and a huge amount of lycra. Or a very small amount of lycra doing a lot of work, perhaps. Her multiple looks are worth the nosy at. Um, we also saw a noteworthy win from Indian jazz supergroup Shakti. They were awarded the Global Music Album Prize for this moment, which was their first studio release in 46 years. And Killer Mike picked up three gongs as well. We'll have more on him in a moment. Yeah, got 30 seconds to go. There were some pretty headline-making moments away from the prizes as well, weren't there? Absolutely. We saw a standing ovation for Celine Dion, who got a huge response presenting an award. She had to cancel her live tour last year after being diagnosed with a rare neurological disorder. We also saw Tracy Chapman return to the stage. We saw Joni Mitchell perform live at the age of 80, which was a bit of a headline-grabbing moment. And then there was the controversy. Killer Mike was the top male winner of the night with three rap trophies, but he ended up being arrested for misdemeanour battery by the LA police backstage. And we also are now seeing some controversy from Jay-Z as well, who did a bit of a Kanye and took to the stage to rant about Beyonce's not being recognised in a best album category. Oh yeah, biggest Grammy Award winner of all time, but Jay-Z feels that because she hasn't won Album of the Year, that was quite interesting actually because it gave you a sense of how much the Album of the Year prize is valued, you know, over even best song or best video or best anything else or even best artist in some ways. They, You know, that best album is a key thing for, for these musicians. Jen, thank you very much indeed bringing us up to date there with all the uh, Grammy Awards winners and losers. Sports time here on the agenda. Let's find out what's been going on over the weekend. Chris McCarty has sent through this quite extensive report. He's been a busy man. Good morning, Georgia. Happy Monday start of a brand new week. And that can only mean one thing, a heck of a lot of sport to discuss. Of course, so much going on over the course of the weekend. So much so I'm not really sure where to begin, I guess. Well, let's start with the live sport that's ongoing. The second test between India and England. England leads at the five-match series 1-0 after that. Well, incredible opening test match. India, though, very much in the box seat to level the series. England five wickets down in their second innings. They require 399 runs. They're still a long way shy of that, some 200 runs away from that. They've got five wickets remaining. Ben Stokes and Johnny Bairstow at the crease, and they need to go some if they're to pull off yet another incredible run chase. Does lightning strike twice? I've got my doubts. As for the football, we'll look no further than the big one last night at the Emirates Stadium. It's Arsenal taking on Liverpool. It was Liverpool, top of the table, taking on third place Arsenal. And Arsenal, well, they've breathed new life into their title aspirations and the title race itself. 3-1 winners on the night. Virgil van Dijk with a... 
performance that he doesn't produce often. It was a bit of a shocker for the big Dutchman at the heart of Liverpool's defence. Arsenal, good value for the three points. And uh, yeah, Liverpool's misery compounded Ibrahim Okanati, their other centre-half, sent off for two bookable offences. So what that does is it bunches up the table. It moves Arsenal to within two points of Liverpool at the top of the Premier League. And the one side that will be licking their chops with that result is Manchester City. They're in action a little later tonight, midnight against Brentford. Victory for Pep Guardiola's men will close the gap to Liverpool at the top of the table to two points. Crucially though, City will have a game in hand. The other big result from the weekend, Stamford Bridge yesterday, Chelsea's well, poor season goes from bad to worse. They were beaten at home by Wolves by four goals to two. Matthias Cunha with a hat-trick. The Brazilian helping himself to that. Chelsea's woes. Yes, OK, they've got an EFL Cup final to look forward to against Liverpool at the end of this month. But in the league, they have been absolutely woeful. They're down in 11th. They've lost more games than they've won this season. Ten defeats versus nine victories. And the knives are being sharpened for Maurizio Pochettino. Chelsea cannot catch a break. And I tell you what, if they were to lose that EFL Cup final to Liverpool, who they lost to midweek last week by four goals to one, if they were to lose it and lose it handsomely, then I do wonder, Mauricio Pochettino, is he the man for the long term at Chelsea? Time will only tell. Man United 3-0 winners over West Ham. That saw them leapfrog their opponents at Old Trafford yesterday. Rasmus Hoyland continuing his fine run of recent form. Man United still eight points back from Aston Villa, who occupy that final Champions League spot. But they've given themselves a bit of hope. Why? Well, they go to Villa Park next Sunday. That one very much a six-point. So that gets you bang up to date with the football. I guess the other results, big results on the continent, Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid and Madrid Derby. They played out a 1-1 draw at the Santiago Bernabeu late last night. And Inter Milan, the top two in Italy, it was Inter who came through, beating Juventus by a goal to nil. Inter Milan right on track to reclaim that Scudetto title that Napoli, of course, won last season. As for the other big sporting stories from the weekend, well, from a boxing standpoint, I hate to say, George, I told you so but I told you so Tyson Fury has pulled out of his unification heavyweight bout with Alexander Usyk that was scheduled for February the 17th I said on Friday's show long before an announcement was made on Friday night late on Friday night that something didn't smell right about this fight there had been a you know a, a vast lack of media coverage and one or two sources close to Tyson Fury's camp have been saying to me over the last couple of weeks, you wait Chris, there will be an announcement and lo and behold there is Tyson Fury, a man running scared, I don't buy the cut for one second, yeah he's got a cut, how did he get it? And there's question marks to that. I just haven't fancied this fight from the word go. And we now have to wait for the first unification bout in the heavyweight division for nigh on 20 years. It's us, the fans, that lose out and we're late with interest. So the next big heavyweight bout, AJ against Francis Ngannou, that one in March, over, yep, you guessed it, in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Bit of tennis to get you up to date with as well. Of course, the Mubadla Abu Dhabi Open, the WTA 500 event taking place here 
here in the United Arab Emirates. We're into the full swing of that today, all week long down there in the nation's capital. When I look through the fixtures and the matchups, Maria Buskova taking on Emma Raducanu. That ultimately is the biggest of the day. That's at 5.30 local time. Emma Raducanu, former US Open champion, of course, looking to just get fit, get a run of results, get a run of matches under her belt. So, yeah, loads going on in the world of sport, Georgia. I'm conscious I've taken a heck of a lot of your time, but yeah, so much to get your teeth into. It's the weekend, for goodness sake, and I've probably still missed something. In fact, I have. Well done to Ireland, well done to Scotland, well done to England, all victors in the rugby Six Nations. Back to you. Chris McCarty, many thanks for that extensive report. Clearly a lot going on in the world of sport right now. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.